Welcome to the Mad Men Happy Hour, the officially unofficial podcast for Mad Men on AMC. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about Season 7, Episode 8, entitled Severance. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is it 8? It is 8. It is 8. Yeah. Oh, all right. I think uh, I wrote that 9. <laughs> I don't know why you did that. Uh, this one is dedicated to a guy named Mike Nichols. I don't know anything about this guy, or at least I didn't until I looked him up. Yeah. Apparently he's a, a friend of both the ham and the wiener. Uh-huh. Uh, both those guys knew him and liked him, I both guess. Both port products, sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I guess he was a stage and film producer for a very long time. Yeah, he uh, directed The Graduate, Catch-22, The Birdcage, and The Graduate was one of the um, inspirations for the season one, you know, Don going through the airport. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, that was a simultaneous... The Graduate and Jackie Brown reference because they, you know, Jackie Brown is also referencing that scene. So Weiner took like the backdrop of Jackie Brown and the sequence from The Graduate. Hmm. But yeah, he also has won an Oscar, four Emmys, nine Tonys, and a Grammy Award. So he's one he's of got I the forget, EGOT. I forget what that's that's what it was. I was about yeah. to say what he's an EGOT. Yep. Um, he also founded the Second City Improv Comedy Club, which many, many, many famous SNL alums hail from. Sure. So uh, a lot of uh, and and I read an article where they they credited a lot of the DNA of Mad Men from the very beginning as uh, a lot of his influences and and that uh, Matthew Weiner likes to kind of, um, uh, as the article said, wear those influences on his sleeve. So it's fitting this uh, gentleman died in November of last year that Mm -hmm. the first chance he'd get, he'd uh, pay homage to him. All right. Uh, who else was influential on this episode? <laughs> well, it was directed by Scott Hornbacher, okay. who has been executive producer uh, alongside Matthew Weiner for the entire run of Mad Men. He was also a co-producer on Sopranos, which is the hmm. Weiner connection there, yeah. and has directed nine episodes of Mad Men himself, including last year's The Monolith, which which was a standout mm. episode for you. Yeah, definitely. The uh, pepperoni slice nipple. Yep. And uh, it was written by Matthew Weiner. He actually, uh, it looks like he's written at least three of the episodes this season. Uh, IMDb and Wikipedia have a lot of blank spots on writer and directors for these episodes. So sure. it'd be interesting if he wrote them all. Just uh, get everyone yep. out. Out! <laughs> but he, uh, said, he said by the end of the, the run, it was just him and a secretary in a room. Yeah. yeah. He was going back to being a guy behind a typewriter, which was... I, th- I think more sweet than bittersweet for him. You um, know what? The way I read it. We were just talking about this before we started rolling cameras and recording the podcast, that it feels like Matt Weiner is happier than I've ever read him in an interview being. Uh-huh. Like, he's just... I don't know. I've always gotten the uh, impression that he has been running uh, disinformation campaigns and has this hostile relationship, which is even having to do this and explaining it. But mm-hmm. he seems to be enjoying the victory lap of the season, which I, I guess is going to speak well for our ex- expectations. Could be. Yeah. I, I hope he's pleased with it. Yeah. Although it seems like a lot of people are broadly WTF about this episode. You know, I go into every Mad Men episode thinking, all right, I've got a good handle on where we're at here and uh-huh. what's going on. And then, Every single time I come out 
scratching my head saying, what did I just see? Well, this ep- what does it all mean? I know. I mean, this episode confounds my expectations. I thought this was going to be a seamless transition to this second half of the season. It honestly feels, I'll be damned what AMC execs say, this feels like a completely different season. Mm-hmm. We have a time jump of almost 10 months. Yeah. So all that work I did in the wrap-up of last year is like, what could we see? You know, Are we going to get the Shannon Tate murders, the Manson stuff? Nope, nope. All that stuff is gone in the past. Sure. So it's kind of a blank slate, and which is interesting because also we are expecting a lot of character growth from Don. Mm-hmm. When really it feels like, and I know this has been a criticism of, of the show many, many times, and Tom Lorenzo were beating this drum uh, early in their review, is that this just feels like it's the same thing. I don't agree with that criticism. Um, I feel like in the end that that's going to be. Um, I don't know. I just feel like that's going to be the, a weak criticism of the show when you look at the the arc as a whole. Yeah, I don't know if I even view that as a criticism right. of this show. Like, that's kind of what this show is meant to be in a lot of ways. I mean, we'll talk about some of the things that happen early on in this series as compared to things in this episode yeah. later on. Uh, it just seems to me like that is one of the mission statements. Like, you know, is that all there is? Seems yeah. to be a defining a defining phrase for this series in a lot sure. of ways. Well, and I think that's also, you know, like a song. Um, just because the chorus repeats does not mean that the things that bet- are the between, the verses between the chorus yeah, have true. no meaning. It's like Don McLean's mm-hmm. uh, American Pie. That feels different every single time the chorus is sung because of what's happened before in the stanzas. So yeah, I kind of feel like Mad Men is one of those uh, American Pie type of um songs uh that you know what we thought when we saw don whoremongering and kicking ass at his work and all that in season one is very different than the the emotions and feelings we're getting in in season seven and that's all intended i think so yeah there's also a lot of really crazy theories being developed when we were watching this i said man this feels a lot like the season one premiere where it's all in hawaii and there's this dante inferno stuff and there's this death imagery and we spin off all these theories <laughs> which i don't know if they mount to a hill of beans yeah. um that's something else we were debating before we recorded this podcast but um there's a lot of that death imagery and a lot of these things alan Seppenwell has a slaughterhouse five theory that we'll talk about here in a bit yeah my my general feeling on those those allegories for death and, you know, a rifle on Pete's desk and 666 over the elevator yeah. shafts and all that stuff, that that all feels to me like setting a tone or or creating an atmosphere yes. or, or, or dwelling on a theme. Not necessarily... I, like, Mad Men doesn't really often do those on-the-nose sort of things. Like, oh, there's an image of someone dying. That means the person standing next to it is going to die. But that's too on the nose for Mad Men. They sometimes but do it, and also occasionally. And also, I do think that a lot of times people say, "Well, these references are on the nose." And yes, if you're incredibly well read and incredibly well versed in the music and culture and the cinema, or and do all that a lot of time, research for a podcast, or do a lot of <laughs> frantic Wikipedia on, for a podcast, yes, it can see on the nose. But I think, I think Matthew Weiner would say that's beside the point. He's using these things to. I want you to feel dread. I want you to feel panic. I want you to feel lonely. I w- and, yeah. and he's using these things as a tool to do that rather than look how clever I am. I'm saying one thing and reinforcing it with the cultural reference underneath it. It's all... Yeah, they don't feel like the Chekhov gun to me, you know? No. 
that that sort of thing doesn't seem to apply so much in this show. Although I'm still waiting for Pete's rifle. I know you are. I'm still waiting I don't for think it's the office happen, man. That's that thing is buried in California somewhere in a landfill. Uh, I think he Trudy got out all his shit. I think Trudy got in a divorce. Yeah, he shoved it into a cake, into a, his daughter's <laughs> birthday cake. Said from my cold dead hands, and then moved to New York. Sure. All right. Uh, all right. Let's ta- start talking about the episode because I feel like we'll yeah, have a lot to say. We will. We will. Okay. We start off with Don walking what i can only describe as a very beautiful woman sure in a fur coat through her audition which we later find out is for a department store called wilkinson's um and they are you know one of the one of the clients there at scmp it feels very true lies to me okay you know the, sure. the, the arnold yeah. schwarzenegger jamie lee curtis dancing scene uh-huh. no no more slowly <laughs> Let let sure. your hands be your lover's hands on your body. Show us how uh, smooth it. Yeah, it's it was it was creepy um, and kind of very voyeuristic, which is reinforced when they pan around and see the very creepy Pete, uh, the the mustache that uh, Ted is rocking. Man, I... totally unprepared for the mustache on the show. Completely unprepared for both his mustache and Roger's mustache. Right. I wish someone had told me that we started off in the 70s. I could have mentally prepared myself. (laughs) Yeah, they were pretty glorious. Although I really like Pete here in this scene. I mean, especially when you combine it later on with how... um, Who is it? Somebody later on this episode says that, you know, the I think it's Don, says the admin are perverts and they all want to just... They love casting. Perverts love casting. And Pete's in there with the biggest fucking smile on his face. Sure he is. Pete, perverts do love casting. They and do. everyone here is a pervert. And they've made that point again and again in the series that everybody yeah. loves, you know, when it's bra model day or what it's it's sure. one of the perks of the job. Yeah, but it's also fairly poignant with uh, the song that's playing over it. Is that all is there that is? Is that all it is, yeah. And it's, it's Don, you know, doing what we saw Don doing in season one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Don in full form again. In fact, uh, he's it's womanizing. He's drinking. Go he's full circle. How did Don get a start advertising. in advertising? Hawking fur coats. Absolutely. So it's it's times a fucking flat circle, man. <laughs> we need Russ Cole to come in here. Yeah. Talk about this ad agency. Just looks like the dream of a city that's disappearing or whatever. Sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's perfect. I I think the scene worked really well. Uh-huh. Uh huh. We get into a diner here after the fact. And Don and Roger have a meal with three of the models. I know the math doesn't add up there, but when you put Roger in the mix, it does. Yep. Uh, Roger insults the waitress, and then as an apology, he leaves a $100 bill for a tip. I I just want to unpack the line that Roger delivers to this woman. I'm going going home with one of you. I'll let you decide which. Uh Isn't that like a fuck you to the other girl? Because he's essentially saying, you're my favorite. If you turn me down, I'll go home with this girl. What's this girl thinking? Like, <laughs> um, I, yeah. I obviously, Roger pulls know. this shit off. I've just he does. like, and I fully that... believe he goes home with both of them. Not for a oh, second really? do I believe that one of them got left behind. I can give a man a heart attack or two. It absolutely can. That's the super interesting thing about this scene. The last time we saw him parting this hard with twins, he has heart attack back in season one. But we've seen him party awful hard we in have. the last few seasons. And but specifically in... with twins, I think that's the mm. the connection here. Okay. Um. We, it, so he calls her Mildred Pierce, the waitress. Sure. Uh, and I looked this up. I had to look this up because I didn't know about it. Uh, it's a 1941 novel of the same name about a middle-class housewife who is struggling to 
basically maintained her family's position um, as as middle class mm. during the Great Depression. And so she goes to work as a waitress, even though she thinks that that is kind of beneath her, uh, which I don't I don't know. That's very classist. But what are you going to do? It's the the 40s, the 30s, rather. I'm just amazed at how well-read and quick Roger is to put that, like, very, I mean, uh, and, and everyone, because even the, the dumb cocktail waitresses got the joke, apparently, or yeah, enough yeah. to know it was disparaging towards this waitress. Like, oh, you're too good to fill up my coffee, sweetheart? How about sure. you get me the, the bill? Yeah, uh, I certainly didn't get it, so. Do you know what the book that's tucked in her apron is? Um, I don't know which book it is. It's written by John Dos Passos, who is most famous for this trilogy called the USA Trilogy, uh, which consists of the novels The 42nd Parallel, which I'm passingly familiar with, 1919 and The Big Money. Um, and I guess it's a very well-regarded classic because the trilogy as a whole is was ranked in the 100th uh, list of top 100 English-language novels. Of uh, the 20th century by modern library, and he was a uh, radical liberal author. And these books kind of espouse a very dim view of American culture and where it was going, heading into like World War One, which is not exactly new tr- new ground to blaze nowadays. Sure. Um, but interestingly, in the 50s and 60s, as a result of some of the more violent um, communist and and liberal takeovers, he. Uh, and and a, a murder of a of a friend of his, and I think the Spanish Revolution, or um, you know, again, I'm I'm talking about history. I'm, I'm I don't know about. He kind of turned against that, and later campaigned for Nixon and Barry Goldwater, huh. showing that he kind of went sharply conservative. Um, so I wonder if this is meta commentary that you know she's this is kind of like Don's type of girl that. Um, you know, he's an establishment guy, but he's got these kind of radical, um, leanings. Yeah, he does. And that also, um, a person that's espouses one thing and then does a 180 and does something else. Hmm. Or if there's okay. something even, you know, deeper that if you actually read these novels that, yeah. that you, you would get right away. But I think there's, you know, room to interpret it on multiple levels there. Sure. Uh, Don gets home. He has several messages waiting for him from several women, and he picks one, and he calls her over. She spills wine all over the floor, and while they get down, she finds an earring that Don says is Megan's. And this is all, like, I think we're deliberately supposed to remember Megan's uh, underwear cleanup, petulant uh, underwear cleanup routine. Sure, where he talks about having to replace the carpet, or she does, rather. And I also felt like that she... The way something about the way she talked, her vocal inflections reminded me of Megan as well. Although she's you know completely different as far as you know, Megan's yeah, long and lean their underwear, and like it's dark and she's blonde and but yeah yeah it's yeah it's definitely supposed to recall that scene certainly. Um, and obviously one one thing that I I didn't get and I think was kind of hard to get in this scene, this is a flight attendant that we met last season actually. Uh, when Don goes flying out to oh, California to visit Megan, she's yeah. the one who knows his name. Okay, on the plane. Okay, um, so I I guess those are the same people. That's there interesting. Um, I I like the callback to Megan here too because you know it's th- this earring here is kind of a reminder of what Ken is later going to talk about. And what this episode is about in a lot of ways is the life not lived. Mm-hmm. I think part of that that definitely ties into Megan. I think. You know, Don regrets a little bit what what happened with Megan, 
and it's you can hear it in his voice when he talks about you know I got divorced and then well I'm actually getting divorced again in that scene. I mean it's embarrassing on multiple levels, but yeah, sure. I mean I, Don knows he fucked up. I mean that's yeah. the difference. Um, he knows he he didn't know he doesn't know better enough to avoid the same trap. But it's like one of those. I might have even said this on Madman podcast that um, kind of therapy allegory where you're walking down the street and you fall in a hole. And it's scary and dark, and it takes you forever to get out of it. But you finally do, and then you walk down the street, and you fall in the hole again. This time, you know how to get out, and it's much quicker. Third time you walk down the street, you'll walk around the hole. I, I wonder Does if they walk around the hole this, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> uh, the awareness that you are in a pattern, I think, is a first step that many, many people don't even get to when they're stuck Certainly. in these dramatic patterns. Yeah. So. I I I I think that from what I've seen of Ma- uh, of of Mad Men so far, I'd be very surprised if this is another season of Don stuck in this particular rut. And I think that's one of the reasons the Wiener chose to jump into this point in time so we can see him in mid mm-hmm. man whore mode because yeah. he knows as well as I uh, as as us that it would be boring to just see him do that all over again. Sure, fall back into that. Yeah. I- I don't know. So if he's ever going to get out of it, now's the time. I mean, he can't. We don't have any more episodes. Of Literally, Mad there's only six more episodes to I go. Know. <laughs> so if it's ever going to happen, it has to happen now, or at least we have to. I don't know, because if, if if this show leaves us with the sentiment that Don might change in the future, to me, that is a Don isn't going to change. Huh. Okay. I find it very hard to see a future for Don that is that involves true change unless the show gives us that. Okay. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's where I stand. Uh, let's move on to Harry, Peggy, and No, no I think you mean Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> Mr. Potato it's Head. Mr. Potato Head. Show some respect. <laughs> uh, they're meeting with Topaz about uh, a new product that's troubling them, Hanes Pantyhose. Mm. They've got an egg. It's hard to beat an egg. Uh, they're they're very upset about this. They don't, they don't know what to do, but they have a couple of ideas. They want a Wizard of Oz-esque green emerald packaging. Mm. I don't know where they're going with that, but is that something that Topaz did in the seventies? Hell if I know. I okay. I think it's I think it's just to illustrate how obvious and just you know crude on you know talking about yeah. on the nose mm-hmm. and and even you know Peggy and Joan are both like you can't imitation doesn't get you anywhere. It's you're going to be second best no matter and do what. Do you want to imitate an inferior product too? <laughs> what did you, you think know, about like, at the end of this when? Uh, the younger guy tries to make little waves like, you know, this is your fault. We should have been out ahead of this. And Joan said, I tried to warn you and you said you weren't worried. And yeah. the older guy gives the younger guy a significant look <laughs> and says, when uh, Ken comes in, uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, he he asked if there's a problem. He said, we had a problem, but we solved it. And he's still kind of giving the younger guy a stink eye. Do you... Mm. I, you know, I You're fired. Well, I just don't know. I mean, these client things sometimes are just a one off and sometimes they kind of become the theme of the season, too. And I don't know. There was something passing between them, but I'm not sure if it's just those two actors having fun or what we're supposed to take away from that. Yeah, I can't imagine that this goes away. I think Don setting the meeting with the Minkin people uh-huh. um, and. I don't know, all the stuff with Joan and Peggy in this episode, I, I think Topaz is going to be around for a little bit longer, Okay, if I had to guess. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what that look is all about. 
from right these on. guys. Right on. Um, Harry, though. I don't think they did Harry's Topaz. Look. I don't think they actually did Topaz Jewels because my fond memory of legs is that uh, when my mom would get them, I would get the the uh, eggshell, and then mm. I used them as like spaceships for my dudes. Sure. And I guarantee if there was like a Topaz version of that, that would have been oh, like, yeah. you know, some kind of crystal prison to put my sure. Star Wars figures in. I have no memory <laughs> of that, so it must not have happened. Unless they're really high end and you just can't afford them, like a $15,000 oh, mink coat. My mom didn't go to Macy's. <laughs> Sorry, no. chinchilla coat. Hell, I don't think there was a Macy's in Indiana until like <laughs> late 90s, early 2000s. So. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> uh, anyway, Harry. Let's talk about Harry for a second. He looks miserable. He looks fat. He looks depressed. He's wait, wait. You haven't said anything different yet. <laughs> he's missed out on the money. Is the problem like well, Harry at the very end of last season? Yeah, sure. Procrastinated just yeah. a little bit too long and got cut out of the buyout. So I can see why Harry would be miserable. No, Harry always gets in his own way. He does, and, and it's glorious. I, I love it's, watching it. It's it's very funny and and it's something I can purely enjoy. Unlike Ken's moment of awesome at the end. Mm. Yeah. Which on subsequent watchings felt more like uh, watching a guy blow his head off with a shotgun. Yeah. What are you doing, Ken? Yeah, it was so it's such a fist pump moment, but mm-hmm. then it's also like we're burying this guy. Yeah, yeah, he's going to give his other eye, <laughs> metaphorically, or uh, maybe not. Potentially, yeah. So Don gets into the office, and there's a short scene with Meredith where she reads him his schedule. It uh, doesn't seem like much happens there, honestly. I don't even he's, know why that scene's in there. He gets to, uh, well, first of all, it's Meredith. I, she's continuing this fiction in her head that she's got this special relationship with Don. Sure. I will say she seems like a hell of a receptionist at this point. She seems good. She's yeah, on She's it. come a long way. Yeah, and Don's like wanting to take and wake me up when, hey, you got casting an hour. There you go. Mm-hmm. You know, Don Don's clocking in to do snoozing at work. Yeah, I, I always kind of smile when I see Meredith. For no real reason, though. It's just like her character. There's something quirky and funny about her character. It's like she's a secretary from a different television show. Kind of. Yeah. Like like a broad office comedy. She's the dopey secretary from that. And, you know, again, she must be really good at her job for Don the Keeper, especially after mm-hmm. that weird I'm your strength. I'm your rock. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kiss you moment. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. No, that that was uh-huh. beyond the pale. Uh we didn't talk about Don's answering service, just kind of keeping track of all his ladies. Uh, I thought that was interesting. He's Don, got four or five if you count the uh, voicemail lady herself, yeah. answering service lady, rather. Whose name I think might be Joan. Is that was right? It? I thought it was Joanne. Joanne. Maybe it's Joanne. Okay. Yeah, it's Joanne. Do you, was, so is that a specific, like, gentleman's calling service, or is that... I uh, it was something like a that voicemail the... sort of like something that he couldn't have Meredith doing, but he needed like a a kind of secretary for. What I'm saying is like, is that a work perk or is that something he's picked up uh, for himself? I think that's personal. C- considering he's calling at midnight ish, uh-huh. I think that's personal. Okay, I agree. I just didn't know okay. if that was a real thing. Uh, like oh, it's I don't like know. you know, I'm not that that was the the, the, the 70s era. Um, uh, what is that, Madison? What is, what's that, uh, the the website that hooks you up for affairs? Oh, uh, Ashley Madison? Ash- yeah, it was the <laughs> yeah. 1970s equivalent of Ashley Madison. Sure, sure. Uh, Peggy goes to the break room, and Mathis is there, and he tries to fix her up with some guy who, not it's not just some guy, it's his brother-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, whose name we later find out is Stevie. 
Sure. Stevie is not a good name for a 30-year-old man, but whatever. Uh, Peggy lays out the problem. Well, I'm sure he insists on being called Steve or Steven. It's just that uh, Matt, Johnny Mathis is a is a dumbass. I, I don't know, man. They call each other Johnny and Stevie and like... I. These guys don't strike me as particularly... Johnny Mathis is a cool name, as evidence I give you the fact that it is Johnny Mathis's real name. Okay. Which I never put that two and two together until Peggy makes a joke about it later on in the date. I never knew what his first name was, honestly. Right? That's what I'm saying. Maybe they've said it, but I don't remember it. Right. I never put two and two together, and I thought it was funny. Like, yes, that would be very disappointing. It's like a Michael Bolton situation from Office Space. Yeah, she thinks it would be very disappointing to... uh, go on this date and then have either nothing happen or something happen. And so she declines. I, I kind of agree. Yeah. Like being fixed up with someone is a rough thing. Sure. Unless it just goes perfectly. Sure. You know, and this is just a rough, I mean, this isn't just rough. This is, this is just broad comedy. I thought. Yeah. Cause you know, Peggy is like queen Pris mode and math, uh, Mathis is just kind of like, flat-footed the whole time especially when he's trying to describe him being handsome and then he's like well the whole because he's like also thinking like maybe is that disparaging towards my wife because like i gotta throw in something about the whole family or uh (laughs) i i just i loved every bit of it sure it's good uh jones waiting for don when he comes upstairs for the auditions she's kind of sitting with the models there which i thought was interesting given some of the stuff that happens later with her uh she tells and she's resorted to doing that because don's been blowing her off Oh, sure. No, she has reasons to be there. Uh, uh-huh. It's just interesting with the sexual harassment stuff and sure. Peggy's comments, how she's sitting with all these models and when she herself could potentially be a model. Anyway, uh, she, she tells him that she's been having trouble with the Topaz account and she is kind of at the end of her rope. And then Don says, well, why don't you go to, why don't you just brand a Macy's? You know, go to Macy's, go to McCann Erickson because they have connections to Macy's and they can help you out. Um, where are you temperature wise as far as gauging the relative coldness or hotness of the war between Don and, and Joan at this point? It seems to have cooled off. I think the one and a half million made some headway. Yeah, but I think there is still some lingering resentment because Don apparently <laughs> is, I don't see Don ducking her in seasons past. Yeah. He's deliberately kind of antagonizing her. And then when he fetches her from the model pool, he even makes a kind of a, what could be considered a harassing or a misogynist comment of his own where he's like, Oh, you're here to audition because you can't possibly be here for legitimate business. Kind of. Well, I, did you get that or am no, I? What I get from Don is more like he wants to stay out of hot water with her and therefore huh. not have much contact. Right. Um, and she is kind of mostly over it at this point because she's going to him. She wouldn't go to him for advice if she had any other option, but there's, still a, there's a lot of tension. It's like, uh, it reminded me of interactions of kind of like uh, uh, parents have gone through a bitter divorce and now they're at the handoff. Like okay. they, they would just as soon net see each other, but they have to because it's just like, yeah, I don't know, there's, a little, there's a little bit of pissiness and annoyance from both of them. And um, I don't, that's that's what I'm getting from it, that it's it's not okay. a shooting war, but it's certainly uh, no armistice has been has been uh, signed. OK. Ken talks with Ed, his father in law, Ed Baxter from Dow about his retirement and he gives him a set of golf clubs, which (laughs) later on may or may not be the thing that got him fired. I'm certain it's not, but, uh, anyway, uh, this, this scene is really funny too. I mean, just Ed Baxter being so proud of making a pop tart is really hilarious to me. Sure. 
Uh, he also Ken Ken's good man. The woman sitting next to him, uh, who is that? His current wife, I have girlfriend, no idea. Uh, because he's talking about uh, his ex, well, his his widow, mm-hmm. right in front of her, and saying that he's no, I'm not too old. I can start new things. And I mean, he went. I was like holding my everything. He's like, you're not really going to talk about nailing cocktail waitresses right beside this woman that you're calling sweetie. But <laughs> then he goes to the pop tart, which is almost worse. Uh, a grown ass yeah. man bragging yeah. about cooking a pop tart. Sure. Well, a lot. So a lot of this is which isn't that's you know, a new. Set, did you realize that's a new invention? Pretty recent pop, invention, yeah. Yeah, pop tarts uh, first debuted in '66, unfrosted. A year oh. later, they came out Oof. the frosted version because oh. they had to they had unfrosted. to work frosted. They had to work on a formula that would withstand the toasting process. Sure. Sadly, they still have not perfected a formula that will not burn the ever living fuck out of the top of your mouth. If you put pop it right from toaster to mouth, but you know, yeah, yeah, I can't imagine a pop tart without icing, mm. without frosting. That just sounds... they still make them. Some of the generic de- department store brands, yeah, or like yeah. the Whole Foods. I wonder if they patented raw organic the formula pop-tart. for the the toaster oven frosting. Uh, I don't know because the slightly better department store or um, you know big box brands still have the frosting. So. Sure, sure. Dow Chemical was involved, surely. Oh, I'm certain. It's, They're it's, not made it's of a, food. It's a napalm derivative is what is what it is. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why it's so hot in this That's center. why, yeah, yeah. It's molten fire It defeats the purpose. If you can make a breakfast item in 30 seconds and then takes 10 minutes to be able to properly right. eat, mm-hmm. it's like, where is the convenience there? <laughs> I ask you. A man like Ted Baxter can make it, or Ed Baxter, rather. <laughs> um, this A lot of this stuff is laying groundwork for Ken's later uh, turn of events, I guess, uh, which we'll get to. Because it is we'll... kind of the the broad horizons. He's he's not talking to travel. He's not even talking about, you know, taking Jack Nicholson on in the PGA tour. Yeah. He's talking about cooking Pop-Tarts. Which is just such a... That's sad. It is. It's it's miserable. Um, The man has spent all of his life working. Yes. He has, he has missed it. Is this all there is? Is such a poignant line throughout this episode no no ed there's more to life than pop tarts yeah take a goddamn cooking class well, man I, I think the pop tarts is the more like uh, sadly as sad as that, that may sad. be i think the pop tarts is the more like he has been working his entire life away the man doesn't know how to do anything other than work the pop tarts are a step in the right direction <laughs> somehow uh that's that's what makes it all the more tragic you know what i said when ken quit or uh when he went to dow it felt like watching a guy blow his head off with a shotgun yeah. this also feels the pop tarts feels like another <laughs> shotgun mouthwash definitely we go to more auditions or at least we think we do mm. don has a dream that rachel has come in with a coat on and is modeling for the wilkinson ad a lot of good stuff here like when he acknowledges her and she kind of gives him this like glare, like don't don't do that glare. I mm-hmm. for a brief moment thought, oh shit, Rachel's fallen on hard time. She was an heiress of this giant <laughs> mall empire, model and now she's coats. modeling fur coats. What the fuck? Uh, as soon as she sure. said you missed your flight, then I'm like, okay, I know what's going on. Yeah, here. yeah. And the the line, you know, you're not just smooth, you're Wilkinson smooth. Uh-huh. I thought that was not only a cool way to say kind of how much Don has thought about her in the past and maybe currently thinking about her uh-huh. and, and maybe feels like he missed his flight there. Um, but also it's a cool, yet another cool way for Mad Men to kind of sneak 
the account in there, the campaign, mm -hmm. like the development of that campaign, right? Because later on, you know, this is their tagline, and you don't really realize that until after Ted comes up with a new tagline for the three women, and then you go, oh, okay, the thing that Don said must be the tagline for this campaign. Yeah, and I guess... I that was neat. I, I didn't realize that so many Mad Men fans were carrying a torch about her until, you know, I got on Reddit. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've always been a Dr. Faye fan. I thought the psychologist from, I believe, season four? Mm -hmm. Maybe season five? I think it was season four. I think so. Um, I thought that was the one that Don always should have tried to settle down with instead of going for the, you know, Betty 2.0 reboot of Megan. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, did you feel that way that Rachel was kind of the one that... It's hard to tell what's in retrospect and what isn't with this show sometimes. Because, yeah, I know that that seems to be the prevailing internet theory that that was the best suited person for him. Uh, but I'm I'm not sure what I mean. I she's got her own money. She we weren't smart. doing the podcast. She had then, her own power. So. Yeah, it's like before podcast. I EP. have no idea what I was thinking back then. Okay. Anyway, Don wakes up to uh, yet another girl in his bed before work, and it's just a real quick scene there um, of him. I don't her. think it was just any girl. I think it was the girl that was vamping through the office right before uh, Don pulled Joan out of the... Oh, and that like pink I think dress. so. It's yeah. hard to tell because it's hella dark, but I there was something about her face that I thought I recognized. Could be. I, um, I mean, that would you know that would set the the tone pretty well that sure. he's just going into these he's one of the perverts in this place yeah, just no. picking up these he, girls he's just getting them out of the you know like a filing cabinet they're just manila folders yeah uh ken wakes up next to his wife or no he, he's on the couch and he's talking with his wife that's interesting because meredith hands him a manila folder labeled mm, minkin yeah. at the end indeed hmm is she just yet another Manila folder. I don't know because that's, that's all special. happening in my head. I can't believe Matthew <laughs> Weiner and I are in the same wavelength. There's no way that's intentional. It's just mm. interesting in my own head. Okay, <laughs> probably uh, should have kept it to myself. So this scene with Ken and his wife are good. Uh, is good. She's concerned that her her dad is so old and he waited so long to retire, and she doesn't want the same fate for Ken. Yeah. So she says, "Hey, you know, you've you've made plenty of money. You should go be a writer. I have plenty of money." We can just go get a farm. You can go write books, and we can be happy. And he he resists that, and he gives I, what I think are excuses, not reasons why. Plus, the great thing, which is you know the prime uh, watching this guy commit suicide at the end, is he defends his choice to stay at this company, kind of futilely against you know try to differentiate her and her, him and his fa her father. God. Uh, by saying, your father was a cog in a giant machine that makes weapons and poison. I'm proud of the company, and I want to yeah. see if I get that raise. I, But he says earlier that he was proud of the work. Ed? Sure. Says he's proud but of what he did. That's the thing. Like, you know, that was the thing that Ken was trying to hang his hat on, and now he is that cog in yeah. the giant company that sells weapons and poison. Uh, sure. And, and I don't know, man. I, I could see that if he didn't have this... He has a successful writing career that he stopped because of this fucking company. Yeah. So, I mean, I get it. Like, the 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 not wanting to just ride your wife's coattails. Mm -hmm. The like, okay, well, I'll just live on your money and I'll be a writer. Quote, just in the same yeah. way that, um, you know, I'm, I've got a podcast. Like, It's funny. Uh, Matt Wiener was giving an interview and he said he feels like some kinship toward Ken because he, for the first five years of his career, he sure. was living off of his wife. Sure, sure. So. Um, there's a little, maybe this is a little bit of a, a Mary Sue there, yeah. but, um, 
I, I just feel like Ken, he's got this career where he could be legitimate and successful on his own. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never pegged him as a kind of guy that revenge would be that important to him. He seemed to have in later seasons seen a bright line between the type of person he is and the type of person that Roger and Pete are particularly. Yeah. Ultimately I agree with you and I don't know why he comes back in the way he comes back. Like what is the catalyst for him going, you know what? I want revenge over listening to this sign that See, I was just giving. My biggest hope is that he is living the fantasy of like the winning lottery ticket. You got a job that what you, you hate. You know, if you win the lottery, the one choice is just to give your notice and be like, fuck all you people. I'm out. Mm-hmm. The more interesting thing is to work the job with complete freedom <laughs> to do it as you see fit. Sure. Like, I want to make you people fire me because I'm going to tell it like it is and I'm going to do the things that I want to do. And I mm-hmm. wonder if he is just trying to do that to get a rise out of and, and we'll find out that the next episode it's just like, just kidding. Or if he's mm-hmm. just doing this as a lark and after he f- gets Pete fired, or ooh, if he gets Pete fired and then he quits Dow and becomes a writer. <laughs> Like, that is a level of almost uh-huh. Klingon-esque revenge. That's sure. some Wrath of Khan shit right there. I like it. Uh, Don gets to the office, and once again there is casting, and he tells Meredith, hey, uh, get a hold of, of Mencken. Get get Rachel on the phone about Topaz. Sure. And then he says, Which that would off. be an awkward... I'm surprised that Don is doing that without any kind of thought of what an awkward conversation that would be since how they left things versus how long it's been since they talked. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. I, I get her on a, she 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 uh she owes me a favor. Has, has it been almost a decade? It has been exactly point? a decade, right? I think so. Yeah. Cuz we started in 60 and now we're in 70. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. Wow. I'm Joe, pretty sure my math checks out. Uh next scene is easily the most uncomfortable I've seen on TV in a long time. It's Joan and Peggy meeting with the McCann guys, and they are just total dicks. Total dicks. Yeah, it's... it's, I mean, they're... uh, There's multiple levels of disgustingness, like the misogyny and just the complete disrespect they have for these fellow professionals as human beings. Mm -hmm. And then there's just... They're not even being clever. No, of course not. Like... Their first joke spread the legs spread everywhere. I mean, that's their... That's the height... height. Of their intellectualism. It just gets worse from there. Yeah. I I cringe watching this scene. I've seen it multiple times now, and I can barely get through it. It's like watching a tw- three 12-year-old boys with a Mad Libs. <laughs> sure. Just the and, most and, and obvious Peggy, base bullshit. Peggy in this scene, I, I don't know what it is about Peggy that, I'm, granted, most of these remarks are not targeted at her. Mm-hmm. But she certainly understands what's going on here, sure. and yet she is able to somehow, for the sake of this deal and this client, keep it together, keep yeah. this meeting on track. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like Joan only got through this meeting on the grace of Peggy. Oh, yeah. Joan would have jumped on that table and started dropkicking fools. Sure. But Peggy was there to rein them in as much as she did. <laughs> Yeah. Which is very little, but well, just enough. She just essentially ignored the harassment and just kept sure. on message and kept on point, which is kind of her arm, personal armor. 
Yeah, and she's always cloaked herself in more and more detached professionalism in response to this. Not that she's ever gotten. That's the thing. I I don't totally disagree with the sentiments in the next scene, or I guess not the next scene, but okay, in the elevator scene. Uh, these these remarks are targeted at Joan. Joan has certainly heard them many, many, many times over. Sure, and it doesn't make her. It, it doesn't thicken her skin. All it does is serve to get on her nerves even more mm-hmm. when it happens. And I don't blame her. Um, Peggy almost doesn't understand that. Right. Right. It's not about the way Joan dresses. It's about Joan's physical appearance top to bottom. And there's nothing she can do about that. Well, also, I think there's a little bit. I mean, it's just a fascinating scene. Anytime you Joan and Peggy, Peggy get together, yeah. I think it's fascinating. But there's also a little bit of internal dissonance with Joan. Because Joan is one like, hey, yeah. you need to raise your skirt lines. You need to vamp it up if you're going to get anywhere in this world. Joan sure. has been someone that has been blessed with these genetics to do that and has worked her way and tried to make that happen, and it blew up in her face. It's like she's Peggy in reverse. She had, like, you know, Peggy was all the dumpy dresses and the bad bangs and the affairs of fucking Pete Campbell. And she Joan is. was always, like, you know, glamorous and uh, coveted, and but and no one took her serious intellectually. And she was, you know, having affairs mm-hmm. with Roger, which is several rungs above Pete in the, you know, uh, sexual competition games. And she's yeah, come and- back, you know, to where now she's trying to battle legitimacy, something that Peggy's largely won. So it's yeah. like they're this yeah. weird intersection. And, and, and I also believe that Peggy is a little bit resentful because of the way that Joan got to her position. Sure. I mean, there there has to be a little bit of that, right? Peggy had none of those quote-unquote advantages that she did. It seems very hard to believe that Peggy would be able to win a 5% sh- partnership stake in a company sure. by selling her body. I, I think you're right. Yes. I think you're right. Uh, and it's it's evidenced in this scene where no one is paying attention to her. Right. It's all Joan. Uh, I, I don't know. There's just a lot of gross stuff happening here. Sure. Um, both between the men and the women in the room, and also the women in the elevator. Uh, it, a lot of a lot of that stuff is understandable because there's a lot of mixed right. feelings in here and a lot of hardships on both sides. It's just really hard to parse out as, you know, someone who hasn't had to deal with that. I wonder what Peggy... So let's stick with the elevator scene, even though we're not there yet. Yeah. Um, I wonder what Peggy could have done to mollify Joan. Because it seems like the first time we were watching it and we were doing the live watch, I'm like, oh, God, Peggy, you really went there? You really started to victim blaming? Well, look how mm-hmm. you're dressed. Of course, you got conference room raped. Uh, but in the subsequent watches, I felt like Joan started most of the shit with Peggy. Peggy was trying to be conciliatory and like that's awful, they're terrible, but you know, at least we, you know, at least we got achieved our objective. And then Joan started the whole, well, you don't have to worry about that cuz the jo- way you look. But Joan deal, that's the thing. Joan deals with this day in and day out everywhere she goes. But what could Peggy possibly have fucking said to make Joan not get the claws out? Nothing. Don't don't say anything there, Peggy. Eh. Just like, well, that didn't go as expected. I get it and it's hard to it's it's hard to like. I understand the reactions sure. from them both, but that doesn't make either of them right. No, I get it. I get it. I just thought that Peggy was trying to be very diplomatic and understanding, and she did eventually dig herself into a hole, just like she often does. Like you know, Dawn with yeah. the whole "I would get my purse awkwardly out of this room." You know, sure. she tends to do that. Like her heart's in the right place, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> she says the wrong thing. She so just often. keeps digging herself in deeper. Um, and then the comment at the end about her just you know, well, go go solve it with your money or something. I mean that that just shows the resentment that she has sure. over Joan getting to be a partner. Which that might be the point. So hard for that her. might be the point that even as diplomatic as she is, she had that. Uh, she's had that low opinion of Joan just below the surface, and Joan yeah. knows it. So Joan's like, "Don't pretend to be like my friend to my face." Like I they have, so. yeah, they have a level of respect and some support in certain cir- circumstances. But that's, mm-hmm. I think, why they're so interesting is because they have a certain kinship, like built yeah. in. But at the same time, they are very different people. They're through the looking glass versions of each other. Yeah, yeah, and that that's what makes the characters. And their relationship is so satisfying in the show. Mm. It's the way that they interact and how how strong the characters are. Should we go on or should we spend five more minutes to 30-something guys discussing Let's do that. the feminism aspects yeah. of two complex women in a situation that we have no idea what it feels When like. we weren't even born at the time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We yeah. should do that. No, let's move on. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Ken. This is the scene that is sandwiched between these other two scenes. Uh, he gets in the office after walking to work and finds Roger and some McCann guy. I don't, I don't even know who this guy is. He's a big mucky muck from McCann. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're waiting for him in Roger's office. They, they fire him, they straight up fire him. That's, you know, Roger pretends. Oh, you get some golf clubs. Who cares? That's not why I'm getting fired. Yeah, I wonder why Roger even went there. I don't know because that's such a non-issue. I would think. I, is I, that technically against the rules? Watching it again, I felt like it was. Not that it was against the rules, but that it was an official sign-off from Ed Baxter. Like, Ed is out of the game, therefore Ken can be out oh, of the game. You gave, so you gave the retirement gift. Yeah, all our business is done there. Yeah. Now you're gone. Yeah. That's what I felt like it was. Interesting. Uh, anyway, they fire him. They tell him he'll, he's going to get a generous severance package as long as he helps Pete pick up on the clients that he's got uh, and and not make too much of a stink about it. Yeah, I forgot, but they've. This is actually a recurring theme. Um, when Pete was trying to recruit him, uh, Ken back, they were commiserating at a, a luncheon or a bar or something, hmm. and um, Ken made the comment about the McCann Erickson people that he said something about his mother working at a mental hospital, and he hasn't seen. Uh, it's something along the lines of I haven't seen that many retards walking around since oh, I visited. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that like since a, I went to McKinn. Yeah, yeah, and so it's like what this guy's saying is entirely correct. Ken thinks he's better than them, and yes. uh, not entirely sure why he thinks that. Since McCann Erickson seems to be very, I mean, it does seem like it's a bunch of prejudice because mm-hmm. Pete, you know, and Roger are yucking it up when Ken goes to lower the boom later on. Yep. So. I don't know, man. I, Pete acts that way too, though. Although Pete acts that way in a much grimier, yeah, sort of way. and ne- none of them crucially ever walked there and they got that to see the attitudes. And it's like I yeah. was thinking, it's like that's weird because you know President Kennedy got elected, and you know that was a big thing. Like, uh, can an Irish Catholic get into the White House? But I'm like, yeah, we have a black man as a president, but there is still racism in really America. All yeah, that much. yeah. It's it's a bellwether, but it's not the finish line. Yes. So there is still a lot of it's weird because in it, I mean, I'm I it, in 2015 it doesn't feel like there's any Irish Catholic bigotry anywhere. I'm not aware of any. Sure. But I don't know. Yeah, at the time it was a big deal. Yeah. Very sensitive to the Black Irish. Definitely. 
Did uh, you know what black? Uh, did no, you? I, I have no idea what that means. Apparently, it just literally means Irish people that are not fair skinned and uh, red haired. Okay, like a, a dark haired or more olive skinned Irishman. Hmm. I right. thought it meant like more like villainous or like a like yeah. a you know Coxney street tough mm. or something. But no, it's just a a, <laughs> a, a genetic thing. All right, uh, let's talk about Meredith again because she seems to be all over this episode. She she goes in and tells Don that the uh, she scheduled a meeting with someone else at Mankins because Rachel died last week. That was a shock to Don, a big shock. Oh, and, and it affects him. You can tell. You, we just skipped the elevator scene, and I know yes. we won. But there is one point I thought was the really deep barb from Be- Peggy, which is "You're filthy rich. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do," mm-hmm. implying that Joan wanted to whore herself out for the jaguar account right like that's one thing where it's Uh, like that if you if you see it in that mm. light that is a very low blow i don't know because that's the thing that got her rich Ah. i'm not i'm not sure if i would extend it to that event okay all right necessarily that's a fair point too anyway meredith okay yeah meredith tells don that rachel died last week Mm -hmm. and it affects him greatly uh not not a lot else happens in this scene other than she goes ahead and schedules the meeting with someone else there uh, that we'll hear about later and don is just completely deflated yeah yeah this it hits him hard takes a win out of his sales probably harder than he would have even guessed before this episode (laughs) agreed and the dream timing it's you know i think that's all goes in there yeah uh mathis is about to leave for the evening but peggy stops him and says you know what i think i'm gonna go to dinner with with old Stevie. Well, she finds out his name is Stevie, Stevie. And then she's like, he's like, do you want me to set up? She's like, I don't know. And he's like, can <laughs> I just go? I mean, poor poor Mathis. Yeah. So so Mathis has made other plans for that night. And he says, you know what? I'll, I'll sell his ticket. He doesn't have to go with us. He can go with you on a date. So he decides, you know, he's going to send. And this is Peggy wanting to feel number. attractive, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. After... After Joan calls her ugly, essentially, yeah, essentially, uh, she's wanting to prove that she's not. And Joan do- goes and does the same thing. Well, I, 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 she takes a different direction, yeah, but she goes to reassure herself. Hmm. See, I think Joan is going to like you. Th- you think I was dressing <laughs> she's provocatively before? Because at one point, when when she's taking the phone call from, um, you know, one of the douchebags, I think the one, and she's she tells her secretary to say that I'm on the phone or I'm on a meeting. Yeah. Uh, I thought she dressed very. Uh, I, I, I it it felt like Joan in drag, kind of. She's got the big glasses mm-hmm. and her hair's weird, and she's got this race, kind of frilly matronly dress going on. And now she's yeah. like, maybe that shows that she it Peggy kind of stung her. I thought so. And yeah. then those douchebags calling her was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going weaponized version of Joan I'm from just here on use out. Use my charms, which. Which is going to be exciting for next episode. Sure. I have no no complaints in that department. Uh, so, I don't know. The 30-year-old Stevie seems like a bad deal, but we'll talk more about that when they get to the actual date. Sure. Uh, Don goes back to the diner from the other night, calls the waitress over. She assumes way too much, in my opinion, heads outside, basically leads him outside into the alley, and they have sex. Yeah, I was, uh, when I first saw this, like, if I was in Don's shoes, I'd have no idea what to do. Uh I come in and say, don't you look familiar? And she clocks out and takes off her apron and goes out to the alley. I'd be like, wait for five minutes and leave. (laughs) Like, okay. I would be like, 
okay, she's angry. She doesn't want to fill my coffee. Fine. Whatever. And I'm out the door. Not only does Don follow her out there, but without a word exchanged, they start, you know. Oh, she tells him, she, he tells her his name. Yes. So, you know, I'm Don. Huh. That's the only exchange of words. It bugged me this whole episode that I thought, I was like, Don, I was like, don't I know you from somewhere? It turns out she's the vampire mom from Twilight, Elizabeth (laughs) Reeser. All right. I don't think before, that's where he knows her from. And before I get any shit from that, mm-hmm. I, I just want to point out that I only know that from the Rift Tracks version of Twilight, which I highly recommend everyone checking out. Okay. If you don't under, you don't if you don't recognize Rift Tracks, uh, they're the same guys that did Mystery Science Theater three thousand back in the day. Mm-hmm. If you don't reference that, then I just pity you. Yeah. Uh, so I really feel like this woman is a sign of the life not lived, and it's. I think it becomes more apparent with the next scene where Don goes into the office and Ken is sitting there in the phone booth and he basically says, getting fired is a sign of the life not lived. What I should be doing. It's such a grand coincidence that I can't ignore it. Uh, I believe that this woman is the same for Don. No, she is, you know, Don has a type. Um, and he kind of swings between kind of the airhead blonde Bettys who he seems to be favoring in his man whoring and these darker brooding lower socioeconomic status brainy intellectual types. Yeah. yeah. You know, the heroin addicted artistic folk, the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Megan, the flighty, uh, high strung actress like the, so I, 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 I recognize your point. I'm not sure exactly where it's all going yet. Okay, well, we we will continue to talk about this as the episode goes. The only thing is, I guess Rachel is that type, except for she doesn't have the like I, she's from a different world aspect. Because the others, like you know, Don could wow with his money and his sophistication. He couldn't do that with Rachel. No. no. So like that's the the missing component. Um, you know, he 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 would potentially be completely equal with her. Sure. Is that maybe that's certainly not his fucking for. cocktail waitress though. No. Or not cocktail, coffee waitress. Yeah, Mildred Pierce. Uh, McCann calls Joan. She tells him she's not available. She's in a meeting, and she heads out the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then Pete and Ken go over his accounts while they talk about Pete's money and Ken's writing. Uh, Pete says that Ken can use his name if he decides not to write in the future, and I think that gets to Ken a little bit. Yeah, there's something... Ken was full force, like, I'm going to live the life not lived, and something in his face changed with his interaction with Pete, and I'm not sure what, because I never saw anything that Pete did that deliberately provoked him. Yeah. But I don't know whether he suspected that Pete was a liar and that he was, you know, involved in this thing the whole time because, uh, you know, I... Pete's always had a kind of rivalry with Ken as well. He has. And Pete's been jealous of the whole writing thing. And and Pete's never been this high on Ken. And I, I think that maybe Ken realized, like, I'm I'm being taken advantage of. I'm being patronized, and I'm not going to stand for it. So do you think Ken just doesn't believe him that that he can use his name in the future? Or is it an insult that he would need to use his name in the future I, yeah i'm not or... i don't know i don't know exactly right. this is the scene that changes his mind and it's but that I line can't tell you why that's the line he goes oh maybe that's what it is well but fuck that doesn't make sense i m- one of my thoughts i just had was that you know we talked about kin always seeing himself in later years as i am a different breed than you all you okay. all crazy people sure 
when Pete says, I have nothing but good things to say, what is like, I kind of want to punch Pete. If I was in, if I would knew Pete and Pete came up to me and said, I have nothing but good things to say about you, Aaron. I'd be like, well, you're a scum. <laughs> I kind of want you to hate me. Uh-huh. If you like me and are giving me good references, what the hell does that mean? But I don't Have know. I, I think it's something wrong. I think it's more just him realizing all the jealousy that Pete has had over uh, with him, um, yeah, over the years, just not letting it go. Yeah, and yeah, that I, I'm not sure exactly why this is the thing that made him choose revenge over living the cushy life off his wife's income, writing awesome adventure books with his badass. <laughs> One eye. It could you know. it could be the crack about the dust jacket. I, that's no. Like, I, no oh, I, I'm gonna look good on the dust jacket. You asshole. Look at me. I, no, but I think that's like the we, in the context of an adventure novel. Okay, Ken would. He totally, <laughs> totally would look cool. He would on look a dust cool. jacket. I don't know that he would look good. He doesn't want to look that way. He certainly. would look cool in the exact opposite way. The L. Ron Hubbard doesn't look cool on oh, yeah. in his admiral uniform and a dust jacket. Yeah. No, you're right. No, I think he would totally, totally look cool. But that's not how Ken wants to look. Ken has been made to look this way. Like Ken you, would you rather pick up, look like Ken you pick up the book Congo, ago. and you're like, "Oh, this is a this is a," and you look and you see uh, uh, Michael Crichton, and you're like, yeah. "Huh? Who's this egghead?" You see yeah. Ken Cosgrove on the back cover, and you're thinking, "Hell yeah!" You're right. It's a boon, certainly for his writing career. Anyway, Joan goes to uh, a store. I'm not sure exactly what store this is, but she buys several fancy new dresses and shoes. Uh, so it could be Bonwit Teller, I think is how you pronounce that, which I is so, yeah. a store that she worked at briefly when her douchebag uh, f- uh, failed doctor husband, rapist husband, military. made her quit her office job. Yeah. Uh, so, or it could be a thing like that um because i think that's it pete goes into a store to return a dress at some point uh-huh. and sees her there and i think that might be the same store i thought the girl that was saying that she worked there or used to work there was a little bit young to recognize joan I did too yeah but it could be that she was just being catty and jo- like joan's really good at like oh you want to say something kind of catty i will de- i i will have a disproportionate response sure um i, I don't know it could so, I mean, the reason she gets so offended by this could be because she doesn't want to be reminded of the status she had at that point in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, she feels like she's come up so far. I think ding, taking her for back sure. to that is is not good in her mind. Nope, for sure. Especially being with, I think his name was Greg. Is that his name? Was it Greg or Craig? It's something like that. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't bring back any pleasant memories. No. Certainly. It's all just accordions and dress shops. Okay. And and humiliation. Yep. Uh Ted comes into Don's office and tells him that Wilkinson has narrowed it down to three women for the campaign, but they don't want to choose, and Ted doesn't want to choose, and Ted pitches a new tagline so that they won't have to. There are three women in every man's life. Which I I like the respect Don gave, but then quickly like, wait a second, you didn't just come up with that. Yeah. And then like I've had this in my back pocket for years. I feel like that's what good admin would do though. They yeah, have ideas that don't really fit yet, but are good ideas on the face of them. But then also then Don saying, those. do you really... I mean, I think that shows how preoccupied uh, at this point that uh, Ted is with the man whore lifestyle. Sure. It's like, God damn it, I'll just, I'll just burn this thing that I've been saving in my back pocket rather than trying to make the client make a decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's kind of where Don's been in years past, where this work is not... 
it's 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 it's, it's not the passion anymore. It's like I just want to chase tail. Yeah, and grow mustache. That's the thing. Um, we haven't talked about the status of Ted right now, but I think from what I've read that Ted has a I, I don't know what you would call it a Ted pit. He's got the, the There's equivalent lots of pits of, going on. He's got the equivalent of what Pete was doing in California. I don't know if you it noticed it, but but Don's apartment, Sans Megan, mm-hmm. and and kind of like an inky, gloomy darkness is very much yeah. a Don pit. It's sunken in. It's I mean, it always has been, but that yeah. hasn't been the defining feature. Yeah, necessarily. like that's on a bachelor pad. That's a bachelor pit. Yeah, all of the principal men. Like I, I can't wait to see Roger. Maybe it's like three mm. deep with hippies. And their Probably. boyfriends, but I think like all four male lead ad execs are uh, rocking pits. Yeah, it feels like Rogers moved on to models now. No word from Cutler. Do we have a Cutler pit? I don't know. I'm not even sure that Cutler's around. Avery's not. Yeah, I don't know that Cutler's at this firm anymore. He just cashed out and said peace. Maybe so. Hmm. After the debacle with Don, because he they they, they they were not needed. It was no. Don and Ted. So and Roger, yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. Anyway, uh, Peggy goes on a date with Stevie. He gets a, a meal that he didn't order, and Peggy's surprised when he doesn't send it back. And then he tells her that Johnny said she's fearless, and somehow that endears her to Stevie. I, I don't get the interaction here so much, other than the interaction with the wine. Well, that's a big part. <laughs> but I also think that's one of those weird the social situations where when someone tells you that doesn't really know you that someone else has said something flattering. Mm-hmm. That might like I don't think Peggy sees herself as particularly brave or um, fearless and funny, but it's flattering to hear that from someone else. So now she feels this kind of peer pressure to live up to that ideal, which leads yeah, to yeah, the yeah. "Let's go to Paris." Mm-hmm. Um, I love Veal. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Maybe she does love Veal. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I get a bad vibe from this guy. I mean, he's talking about how he basically just got fired from his job. Uh, he's he's running around doing interviews, but he seems like, I don't know, a guy who's 30 and called Stevie and just lost his oh, job but... is not like the most attractive option for a high-powered account or a high-powered ad exec like Peggy. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. When there are Dons out there, right? Sure. On the other hand, he... he, he... He's kind of a handsome dude. He looks kind of like a poor man's version of Night Owl 2 from Watchmen. I can't remember that guy's name that plays him. Yeah. Um, he has no control over Johnny Mathis calling him Stevie. Sure. Again, no, uh, fair, until yeah. I hear Peggy call him Stevie, I, I don't think that that's a necessarily a thing. <laughs> and things don't work out at work all the time. And he's got enough money mm-hmm. and wherewithal that he could just go. He's got meetings in D.C. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's got no prospects at all. Um, I just think that this remark recontextualized the whole date. She, it was a disaster. Yeah, and he was kind of like weak and not the things that she's looking for. That's that's what I mean, man. I don't I don't know how he fits into Peggy's life. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, I don't know. And I feel like she's definitely rethinking it after the fact too. Do you? Yeah, because I think I mean, that in she... the cold light of the sober light of morning, I think yeah. What she says is that. She thought he was a fling, and now she's thinking long-term potential. I don't think Peggy tells that kind of lie. But she's drunk. She's real no. drunk at that point. In in the, her apartment looking for the passport? Yeah. She wakes up the next morning with a hangover looking for aspirins. I mean... Well, yeah, you do when you drink three bottles of wine. That's what I mean. And you also get real drunk. Well, I also think it's... shit you don't mean. I also think it's interesting that she left her passport at work 
Mm-hmm. Essentially, her career once again is sabotaging her personal relationships. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, that, and I feel like she acknowledges that that's a little an, bit. That's an on the nose Madman reference for you, but sure. Um, it also felt kind of genuine. So I don't mm-hmm. know. I I'd be surprised we don't see this guy again. Okay, I, I would be too. He's clearly Definitely. blocking my uh, Peggy and Don yeah. shipping. Although, honestly, uh, that's a backseat to my Peggy and, and Stan shipping at this moment. Yeah, yeah. Because we're about to get in. We're about I, to get into the, the, the Stan scene. We are, we are. Uh, first, I'm, just, we have I'm to, hot thinking about it. Ooh. We have to stop by Rachel's funeral first, though. Um, <laughs> ah, a bummer. Where he, he talks to some woman. I don't know who this woman is. Does she introduce herself? Uh, it's Barbara. Barbara. Her sister, who did appear in season one oh, as wow. like a okay. confidant for Rachel. I don't remember that. That's uh, why she knows, you know, Don. Yeah, and all his marital issues and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Or, which he, you know, is happy to explain to her. And then he sees Rachel's kids sitting over there. And I feel like, you know, covered up mirrors. You don't, Don's not wanting to see himself in that mirror. Well, he partially uh, uncovered one, which I can only... He does. I think that means goes, Rachel's haunting this house forever, essentially. Her yeah, soul yeah. is going to be trapped there. Something. I don't know the Jewish customs. After but. after the podcast, we should go into this bathroom, shut the door, and say, bloody Rachel, bloody Rachel, bloody Rachel. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> My guess is nothing. She comes in wearing a fur coat and tells us we've missed her flight. <laughs> Uh, and then what's worse is Pete comes in and says, back to work. <laughs> oh, God. And then we come back out and record a Game of Thrones podcast. Life goes on. The, the most important thing in this scene is when she explains that Rachel lived the life she wanted to live mm. and that she had everything. Uh, and that affects Don. You can, you can see you it on his face. Do you think it's true? Or do you think that's just her I taking? I think that is true. Hmm. I well, think Rachel seemed like a much more put together person. I oh yeah, than Don. I certainly think that Rachel would have lived to regret marrying Don Draper. Yeah, oh, but yeah. I also don't know that. I don't know. Maybe she didn't have the perfect life. I I, t- I take her as an example of what Don wanted. Okay, and what Don still wants in a lot of ways, but is unlikely to ever find, which is you know the life that he wants. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Don is ever going to be happy. Yeah, uh, in the way that. I envision someone like Rachel being happy. Like okay. I said, she she felt to me like she had a much better handle on her life. Yeah, I don't know if Rachel's the type of person that, you know, seven years in a marriage with kids would be like, oh, is this all there is? Mm. She did seem hmm. a much more happy and content person, which is why she was horrified when Don was suggesting just running away from everything. <laughs> sure. Which is exactly what Peggy's doing here, right? I mean, she, she's going to come back, but... I mean, she's got nothing... That's the, the, you know, if we're talking about through the looking glass versions of characters, Peggy is different from Don in that she has nothing to run away from. Yeah. Well, to be really accurate, well, uh, she's already run away. That's true. So that... She ran that, away from Pete, which is her, her biggest her, trial And her child, their, their yeah. love child. Sure. I think that was a good situation to get away from, honestly. Hmm. She did the right thing. Uh, anyway, Peggy's date continues. And... It's going to be a Mordred situation where, Mordred? yeah, like, uh, you know, the illegitimate son of Pete and Peggy is going to come back to ruin the for- firm as a upstart 18 year old. Oh, uh, I, I don't think so. You're damn right. I made an Arthurian legend reference. I, I, I don't think that we have time for that in <laughs> but, six episodes. But there's some theories about how this is going to get really trippy with time jumps, and maybe we'll jump forward to the 80s and we we'll get to the disco era. Oh my and... god! 
yeah sally's going to woodstock 94 <laughs> when she's 45 as the, the pathetic old yeah hippie trying to relive their dreams yep apologies to any pathetic hippies listening to podcasts <laughs> Uh, anyway, Peggy's date continues. They make fun of Mathis and they talk about going to Paris. They decide, Hey, we're going to do it. Let's go to Paris tonight. They go to Peggy's apartment. She can't find her passport Mm. and they briefly make out, but she doesn't want to sleep with him because, you know, she thinks it's turning into more than a fling. And so they say, let's go to Paris in a few weeks. Poor Stevie. Cock blocked by legal (laughs) document. Poor Stevie. I agree. Poor, poor Stevie. I don't know. So I, uh, we, I, couldn't we didn't have closed captions available on this thing and i couldn't uh-huh. tell whether she when he said so old-fashioned about not wanting to sleep with him on the first date and she's i couldn't tell whether she said i haven't tried old-fashioned or i've tried new-fashioned i think it's the latter okay either way it means the same thing essentially she's deciding she wants to do this quote-unquote the right way mm-hmm. uh which is yeah the definition of old-fashioned i don't know i i sure me, especially with that blow up with her mother over abraham why wine or no i don't think she was incapacitated or unable to give consent i think she was all about this until the you know not be able to find now i don't know what it means when she finds her uh passport at the office if that's going to screw things up but i'd be surprised when i hear from stevie again all right go back to don he's laying in bed and he's what I can only assume is thinking about Rachel and her death. And he's listening to Nixon on the TV. And we see then Peggy waking and this up. Is, this is the date anchor because yeah. uh, research shows that Nixon gave this speech on April 30th, 1970. Okay. Perfect. And so it just, this whole I don't thing think we've ever place in that week. Yeah, and probably. we never made this clear, but if you don't remember, we left at the first moon landing, which was in July of 69. So yep. we've, we've come forward uh, almost the exact same jump in time that the show made we've made yeah so then pete and roger are having a meeting when uh ken comes in in glorious fashion and tells them the bad news that he was hired at dow as the head of advertising and not only is he not going to fire them but he's going to be their client and he is very hard to please i'm your worst nightmare (laughs) and pete's reaction shit yeah the lot and and even roger like i've barely seen roger share share a soul gaze with pete yep and the whole you're gonna fire us oh it's way worse i'm gonna be your client (laughs) ah so Super satisfying as a fan, I gotta say. But then again, on the other level, you're right. We know this is unless he's doing the lottery ticket scheme, and this is just a uh, you know a, a chance to see to to get the like my boot on your throat moment, and then I'm gonna go off and be a badass writer. Yeah, it, it feels like a you know cut off your nose despite your face sort of moment. Sure, like I, I I don't know. He's doing the thing that he desperately wants to do. And yet it's going to hurt him in so many ways. It's, mm. ah, I, don't, I don't know. But it was a glorious moment. I mean, just for the effect it had on Pete and Roger. Sure. No, I def- my I was cheering the first time I watched yep. it. It was only on subsequent viewings that I realized that, oh, Ken, this is not, yeah. not really the right thing for you to be doing. And frankly, I was cheering on second viewing, too. It still was still awesome and funny. Yeah. It just was a little bit more. It was also sad. Indeed. Peggy finds her passport in her desk. And then Stan and Mathis come in to give her shit about Stevie. And then Stan encourages her to go to Paris. That magnificent bastard. Yeah. My God. The hair, the beard. The Look gut, at him. Look the, at the him. Tucked in shirt, the the tie. I love it all, man. The the implied stench of marijuana entering oh, yeah. the, the room. Yeah, the the glassy eyes. 
I tell you, I I I fucking love Stan, and he was such yeah. an asshole when he was introduced. You're right. You're right. He was. Uh, He's changed, but so then again, much. so was Ken Cosgrove. A lot of people don't remember mm-hmm. this. Ken was like the creepiest of the office creeps in You're season right. one. You're right, as far as treating women badly and all that stuff. So yeah, until he found people Alex can Mack, and then, people can change. Yeah, a lowly illustrator can morph into a god, a grizzly Adams-based god. <laughs> Apparently, of, yeah. of wood woodland things. Sure. Would you say he's the Ron Swanson of this show? He is the Ron Swan. He needs just they, more liberal. Old Spice needs to pick up the phone and sign him to a <laughs> a campaign. That would be incredible yeah. for football season. Uh, Don's leaving his office when Meredith reminds him about the meeting with Mankins, and he's confused by that. Uh, he goes to the diner again, and Diana sees him and says, "You know, when this is not going to happen again." Don tells her about his dream and Rachel's death, and she says, "Don't come back in here without a date." Yeah, what the hell does that mean? Not to lead you on or make you more interested, but next time bring a date. Was she... That doesn't sound leading or interesting at all. No, unless she's going to a fairly large leap of threesomeville. Oh, Jesus. Which we know Donna's not down with. And, and Roger saw, I mean, she saw what Roger was doing, right? With the two girls, one on each arm. So maybe she oh, assumes that he might I think. I bet that's it. Like, I that's just that's the norm it. for him. I bet. I, this was just a we- This felt... This felt I very rarely do I hear the click clack of typewriters in the background, but oh, yeah. I did yeah. because she seemed like I I would almost buy that this is a, another vision sequence because mm-hmm. I don't see how a complete stranger levels this kind of devastating right on psychoanalysis of Don from the jump. Yeah, and I get it that she is like well read and brainy and she's you know slumming and all that stuff, but damn no I. Uh, it's very, very weird for me. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff she says is 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 meant to inform us about maybe some of the events in this episode, especially the stuff about think about when you had that dream. Yeah, Uh, so you read Seppenwall's review, right? uh, I read part of it. I didn't get to this part, I don't think. But you haven't, and you haven't read Slaughterhouse-Five. No. I just got done reading that book in mm. November. I think it was on I finished it over to flight coming back from the ABQ Fan Fest. And there's this character Billy Pilgrim that stars in the book, he lives his life in like out of time. He jumps forward and backwards and he's at his birth and he's at his you know he's an old man and then he's in World War II as a young man and they don't make any explicit reference to Slaughterhouse 5, but Sepinwall pointed out that it was published in 69 the year before. Hmm. And that this conversation he's having with Diana and she's saying like you, you know, this plays with your sense of time and, you know, everything's very dreamlike. I wonder, I don't think so because that'd be such a radical departure from Mad Men that we're going to have this time traveling adventure flashback thing with, with, although Mad Men's done that before they flash back. Why couldn't we flash forward? Sure. I think, I think we could do flashbacks. I don't know if we could do like Don's consciousness out of time. (laughs) Like Don's Don's current brain in his old body or current brain in a future body surveying his life. I don't know that we can do, you know, Ghost of Christmas Past type shit. I don't know because I I don't know because when if someone had told me the structure of Slaughterhouse Five, I probably never would have read it because it just sounds so stupid. Mm. But when you read it, it does not feel stupid at all. It's just one of those things where there's nothing you can't not get away with artistically as long as it's done well. Okay. So 
I I don't think so because that is a radical departure. But also, I would be super interested if if Weiner went that direction. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I I don't know the, the other line here that seems significant to me is maybe you dreamt about her all the time, and it, it takes me back to the idea that that Rachel is not necessarily a marker of what kind of woman Don wants or anything mm. like that. It's more of a general sense, especially when paired with this song, is that all there is? Um, Did we talk about the fact that that was potentially going to be the series theme? We touched on it briefly at the I, beginning. I wasn't sure we did that pre-podcast or during a podcast. I think both, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm everything. I, I'm not sure when things are happening. Yeah, and no, I, I was wearing a fur coat earlier too, so it was really <laughs> it was very confusing. distracting. Yeah, uh, but I, I think that's more of a general sense of Don questioning the choices that he's made, saying, "Is this all there is?" I, I having sex with this woman behind the in, in a back alley. Look at my choices. Look at my life. Mm. That sort of thing. I don't think this is literally. This is the woman I should be with, and mm. she's dead now. I think more more along the lines of like this is a woman who knew what her life was about, who followed those pursuits, and I'm not doing that. Hmm. And kind of the unfairness of like Don Draper dies at this point in time. Who is hurt? I guess Sally, Sally. and Bobby because yeah. they're and by extension Gene because they're stuck there with Betty and Castle, you know Frankenstein or whatever we call it. Yeah, but I. Francis Stein, I, I, he's kind of like this nothing guy. He's a phantom. Whereas Rachel had yeah. people that cared about her. And yeah. I'm sure a lot of people would show up at Don's, Don's funeral, whatever. Oh, yeah. But yeah, no, I think you're, you're right. That there's, there's also, kind of a cosmic injustice that this woman who had it together died. And Don, who is this haunted individual. Yeah. Still fucking up his life. So many years later, <laughs> living out rage, drinking to excess, trying all these drugs. Still, still ticking. Sure. Roger. And Roger, yeah. Roger should have died Roger. a decade ago. Still ticking. Yeah, he should have. There's also the fatalistic view of this, which is, if that's all there is, then fuck it. Yeah. You know? Like, this is who I am. This is all there is, so let's do it. Because the original... And like, that's spoken, kind of the view Roger has at this point, I think. The original spoken word part of the song is about a fire and losing everything, and it's like, that's not that bad, so let's... So Don's been through the worst experiences in life, and he's yeah. still dancing? There's a really fantastic article, uh, a write-up on this episode, which takes that viewpoint. Um, I can't remember where it is. Let's let's go ahead and head toward feedback, and I'll look that up while we're, while we're doing this. Okay. I'm heading towards feedback now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we get to feedback, as always, we got to do a little bit of bill paying, what we call pimping. Uh, as you recall, last year, we encouraged people to support us using subbable.com. Uh, as in a surprise move, Subbable is going away because uh, they had some problems with uh, Amazon discontinuing. It's all very technical and nobody really cares. But <laughs> the the upshot is Jim and I were left scrambling to kind of uh, figure out how to fill that gap. And we decided, something we've been toying with for some long time, is to kind of roll our own crowdsource funding solution. Something that we have control over. Something that retains our independence and kind of puts our destiny in our own, own hands. And uh, Jim used his web developer background, and he came up with clubbaldmove.com. It's club.baldmove, 
Com. Man, I don't know if I'm comfortable with you putting this all on me. It's your fault. You're to blame. <laughs> and it's what it is, is allows you to support us. Uh, you know, we are independent podcasters. This is our full-time profession. The reason we're able to do a lot of podcasts that you enjoy, or maybe you just enjoy Mad Men, in which case, this is probably a fool's errand, because why in the world do you support Bald Move? We're, our, you got six more episodes, and you're out. We're not, <laughs> we're not going to welch on six episodes. That's true. That's true. But hopefully we can convert you. Hopefully you'll be hungry for more. Uh, we cover a lot of other shows. Yeah. We do. We do. I think, uh, you know, you, if you're a Mad Men fan, you might like The Leftovers. You might like Fargo. Mm-hmm. You might like True Detective. All things coming in the back half of our season. Or something else new that's coming up that we haven't even who heard even about. Who even knows? Who yeah. even knows? Uh, the, the problem is none of that will happen if, if uh, we cannot make ends meet. And, and we rely on you to, to make that happen. And you can do so for as low as a dollar a month. And you get so many compelling features. Number one, you get access to an ad-free feed, so you'll never have to hear me give this pitch again. Just gone. Yep. Boom. Vamos. You can watch us record our podcasts live. Uh, it's the quickest way to get our, our podcasts. You get access to Lunch with Jim and Aaron, where we sit around and we drink beer and we talk to the fans using the Q&A app. A lot of other cool video bonus features we're going to be uh, implementing. There's a VIP section of the forums where you can kind of help us, um, you know, uh, shape the future of Bald Move. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty compelling. It's a good value, and it's only going to get better as the, the year winds on. It's club.baldmove.com. Please check it out. We really, really appreciate everyone that supports us so far, and ask if you could find it in your hearts and wallets uh, to help to help us out by joining our club. Okay, Mitchin says, Like many fans, I've been rewatching the previous seven episodes, and I may have stumbled into an interesting parallel with Sally, Peggy, and Don. In the Waterloo episode, Sally somewhat surprisingly chose the nerdy guy Neil instead of the Don-esque football player character after getting Don's advice on the phone. Could Don's emotional realization about his feelings for Peggy be in the same vein? Oh, a fellow Don-Peggy shipper. Don's previous wives have been the stereotypical embodiment of beauty, whereas Peggy's intelligence and aptitude make her a less obvious choice for the football player in the suit. This also works with Don's vision of a barefoot dancing Bert. That happened right after he hugged Peggy on hearing the news of the Burger Chef win. Um, so essentially, it does, but it also happens immediately after the buyout. Yeah, but I'm saying like, what we we talked about? What does Sally's choice of the nerdy guy mean sure. in in reference to her learning from her parents' mistakes? But also, what could it mean in reference to Don learning about his mistakes? Yeah. The thing about yeah. Megan is she wasn't a brainless bimbo. No. No, not at all. She just wasn't I what wasn't she? She wasn't an ad woman. She wanted to be an artist. No, she was strong-willed as well. Mm-hmm. Um she had definite ideas about her life and they clashed with Don's. Sure. Hmm. Anyway, uh should I continue with a, another feedback? That that article I'm, I was talking about is on the New York Times. Uh, it's written by Logan Hill. and That it, fish rag? I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, written, written by Logan Hill, and it is just a fantastic breakdown of that kind of fatalistic view of of Don's life uh, as it stands right now. Rachel A. said, I felt compelled to write this email. I love Pete Campbell. Yes, he is the grimiest, sleaziest, whiniest, grossest character on Mad Men. And yes, he is a rapist, a tattletale, an opportunist, and a pimp. <laughs> but my God, have you ever seen a B character in a TV show so well-rounded and fleshed out? Well, there's always Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> <laughs> no, Pete's fantastic as a character. Yeah, what's funny is, like, 
I'm going to continue your email here in Rachel uh, in a minute, Rachel. But there was a debate on the Nattercast thread about this, mm. where this is one dude. It wasn't enough for us to acknowledge that he was a good character. Like he like had this personal offense that we disliked him at, on any level. And I'm Pete like, Campbell is a despicable human. Yes, being. yes. But there are some people that like really carried torch almost too far. I think they've they they're trying to compensate from how much we all hate him. I uh, hate okay. Pete, yeah. but it's in a I love watching him kind of way. Yeah. It's not like a no, Lori Grimes hate kind of way. You, you love to hate him. Yeah. Absolutely. He's he's a fantastic character, and it's all due to how disgusting of a human being he is. Anyway, he's made us laugh and cringe, or cringe and laugh, as Rachel says, elicited mm-hmm. pity as well as contempt. And we know Peter Campbell inside and out. He's so driven, yet lacks so much self-awareness, craves love and respect. It demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of how to show it to others. He's broken and small, but has resilience and ambition that seem limitless. And he's hilarious. The hardest I've ever laughed at the show has been when Pete's on the screen. It says, that's true. It says so much about how we, the audience, know a character when something as simple as tripping on the stairs or the color (laughs) of a sweater he wears Uh, uh, elicits a genuine... It's always unintentional from Pete, though. Sure. Pete is not a funny guy, but... No. I don't don't know. Even when he's railing about something righteous, about America having a shameful day, it's still (laughs) funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he lists his genuine belly laughs. You think Don hit rock bottom because he once drank so much he forgot an entire weekend or jeopardized the safety of his children? Pete has lived in not one but two pits. The man exists on rock bottom but still has enough <laughs> naivete to show genuine and sheer glee when he manages to score a win no matter how small. All this is to say he's one of the best written characters of all time in any medium, TV, film, literature, you name it. I can't think of a character so varied and entertaining to watch who has such depth and nuance. Yes, I said nuance. I get a lot of side eye when I say this to people, but he's hands down my favorite character on Mad Men and probably of all time. He's such a delight to watch, and he's had such a subtle but drastic evolution over the years. It's impossible not to be impressed with Wiener and company. He went from an entitled wannabe macho prick to a sad, resigned, and lonely, but somehow still optimistic man. The show's going to be sorely missed. No one does character development like Mad Men. I agree. I mean... That's the th- pe- people get us wrong when we come up with stuff like the Peach Pit and Grimy Little Pimp. Uh, if we didn't care about him, he wouldn't have cool nicknames, man. The yeah. same with Harry, like his patheticness is part of his character. You can't deny that. Uh huh. Like he just got called Mr. Potato Head and didn't even comment, <laughs> didn't even defend himself. You don't think Matthew Weiner is intending us to see him as a joke? Sure. Yes, he's good at his job, but he's also a fucking sack. Take home a sack eating potato man. Yep. (laughs) (sighs) Jamie T from Houston on the forum says, I'm a little bummed that they jumped ahead so much in time. It's not that we just left the 60s. It's just that they're going to have to play catch up. And the show is so much more interesting when things are happening in the present. Peggy's date was the most gripping storyline. And that includes the sexist meeting and the uh, meeting with Joan that prompted it. It's just that Mad Men seasons, when taken as individual seasons, have always been a bit of a slog in the beginning, would pay off in the second half. I had hoped season seven wouldn't be too many seasons. I had hoped the wiener would say, fuck him, and have this next episode pick up right with the drama of the buyout. And Lou, Don's triumph over Lou, I wanted to see that. Hmm. It's still my favorite show. I mean, I'm literally complaining that Mad Men is not more conventional, which I realize is weak. (laughs) I feel your pain, Jamie. I... So far outside of what my expectations were. 
You had a lot of time and thought invested. I did. I did. But I'm not ready to throw out the wiener with the bathwater. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I... I'm sticking with the ham and the wiener. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with her here because of the shortened season. Like, it's one thing when you get a 13-episode run sure. and you have that time to play catch-up. A big jump in a seven-episode season seems like a dangerous thing. Although I feel, I really do feel, other than what happened to Cutler and Avery, though we can guess, mm-hmm. I do feel like we're mostly caught up. Like, we understand where yeah. everybody is. But it feels like episode. we missed a lot of interesting, juicy stuff. It does, yeah. The I don't know. I don't know what was left to be said about Cutler that wasn't already said. I just Don feel- won at the end of it. I feel like that I'm like Jason Bateman on Dodgeball. It's like, uh, you know, this flash forward is a bold move, bold strategy call, and let's see how it plays out. Mm. And he's got six more episodes. We'll see. Um, I assume he's telling the story he wants to tell. His being very satisfied and happy in interviews implies that he's happy with the result. He's not like, of course, I, the other thing is, I don't know that Matthew Weiner's ever given a shit about what we thought about Mad Men. You, I think you're right, yeah. So I don't know if I should feel optimistic based on him being pleased with how the season's turned out <laughs> except for i've been pleased with everything he's turned out so far so hmm. um I, but i'm trying to avoid the pit i usually fall into which is pessim unwarranted pessimism okay that's kind of my default setting trying to yeah. trying to uh right that ship uh teletype wrote in and said we're about nine months after vince to the season a finale long enough for roger and ted to grow those awesome mustaches he could have just called in what? Teletype. Oh. Never yes. mind. <laughs> I wonder if we'll see more significant time jumps between these final episodes. The song Love Hangover, which was used in the season promos, was a hit in 1976. Oh. Perhaps this great series will end with a dose of bicentennial fever. Hmm. That's how I was got my start. That would be very fitting for me. Overall, solid debut for the final half season. I can't wait to see how things wrap up. More grist for the uh, yeah. Billy Pilgrim mill. That's an interesting thought. Because I know that they don't really do anachronisms in this show or in its marketing, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's fairly compelling. Sure. Uh, Lisa LL, or as I have to call her, Trippel, our senior black correspondent checking in on the first episode, said, All right. All I can do is be amazed at the callbacks. It's like the wiener is winding up for a big finish. Peggy says she wants to go Paris where margarine was invented. In season six, the episode Man at the Plan, hmm. when Ted, Ginsburg, Peggy, and the gang are rapping about margarine, Peggy says it was invented for Napoleon because armies needed it to move and it never spoils. And Ted is amazed at her in-depth margarine knowledge. I rewatched the whole series in preparation for these final episodes and noticed the whole premiere episode is full of the on-the-nose references to the past like that. Joan being recognized as the former department store employee, Ken hmm. and his writing, Fillmore Auto Parts, Don knocking on Rachel's door and not looking unlike the hallway to Sylvia's, etc. It's probably nothing, but I remembered. Yeah. Speaking of remembering, I don't think we got a chance to talk about this on the podcast. The if that's all there is, just keep dancing. Mm-hmm. There's a line that Don has in episode ten of the first season after Roger suffers his second heart attack, where he goes to Rachel's apartment and all kind of like this moral existential crisis and tries to come on to her and she keeps fending him off and he grabs her and says this is all there is this is all that's that's life or whatever it's it's kind of like he says it the song asked a question he says it in a statement form hmm. and 
knowing that the wieners wanted to use this since the pilot episode, I wonder if some of these Rachel parallels are just to get that song and get that mood back into the, it could be. the show. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm with her. I like the, the callbacks to season one. I feel like that is what a final season should be in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want it to be exclusively that or over the top or anything. Sure. Um, and I don't feel like it was here, but I feel like that's warranted, right? You're wrapping up the show. You want to honor the memory of the show. Yeah. It's a good way to do it. Doug L., who you may recall as our uh, legal correspondent over on Better Call Saul, turns out is also Jewish okay, and a lawyer. Don went to Rachel's relatives sitting Shiva, and he helpfully says that Shiva is pronounced like the prison weapon, not like the Hindu god, which I'm like, the Hindu god's not pronounced Shiva? Shiva. It's Shiva, is it? I, I don't know, man. Uh, anyway, it's a seven-day period of mourning after a person dies. Madman showed that part uh, that is essentially awake, but sitting Shiva runs the whole week. The sitting is where friends and relatives stay with the bereaved because the idea is to keep them company. It could be as few as one person, but the way that way they don't have to be alone during the difficult person. The mirrors. Period. Tell me about the mirrors. He doesn't talk about the mirrors. Damn Maybe it. he will next week. The yeah. other reference was to a minion. A minion is a quorum of a Jewish adult men, specifically ten men, required for... Uh, it sounds like ten men. Minion is Jewish for ten men. Uh, required for certain rituals and ceremonies. Since Don is not Jewish and has not had a bar mitzvah, I guess it would be Hebrew, not Jewish. I have Hebrew is no the language. Idea. Jewish is the cultural identity. Okay. Anyway, since Don is not Jewish and has not had a bar mitzvah, he cannot be part of the minion. From a story perspective, I think that the fact that Don can't be in the minion is significant. It further cements the theme that Don is an outsider, and that even if he had taken a different path and managed to stay with Rachel, he might have ended up exactly where he is now, alone and not fully able to participate in mourning her. That's a solid point. She's the road not taken. If he took that road, he would be with two kids, alone, and a sad, pathetic existence. Okay. Like... So it's very fatalistic, right? Even if he tried to, yeah, he couldn't get, escape his path. Yeah, no, I, I think that there is a lot to that. Yeah, there's a lot to that. Like if you had the you know safety option of like the girl you always carried a torch for, and you know you get divorced and you call her up and you find out she's dead. Yeah, that's a whole other gut punch than you know never having that. I don't know. Sure. Uh, Tina from Kentucky says, as I type this email, I'm feeling a strong visceral reaction from the scene where the Peggy and uh, Joan were harassed. Of course, that was a point, right? Mm-hmm. If we reflect on male behavior throughout the seasons, the culture of misogyny and general assholishness has always existed. In fact, I'd argue as women and racial minorities become more visible in corporate America, the old boys club, club revolted, creating a tense work environment where those who are different are treated as perpetual outsiders. Mm. Seeing the same thing happen in gaming culture right now. <laughs> sure. A yeah. revolt. Uh, on the elevator, Joan expressed the rage that many of us have felt, only to be chided by Peggy, who tells Joan, you can't have it both ways. Dress like you do and then be taken seriously. This is crazy as hell, considering how prim and proper that Joan has made her wardrobe. She dresses rather matronly for the times. She has big breasts, and she says, I have a big butt. Um uh, it's she hard says to that? S- well, well, Tina says that. I just want to make sure I was not saying that I also have a big ass, although I do. Oh, it's oh, just Joan weird when that. I'm when she go, when when the when the listeners go, when the 
emailers go into the first person perspective and sure. they're talking about and their anatomy. Their e- it's it's I don't know. I have a weird I have a weird uh, <laughs> Rachel walking in the fur coat moment. Okay. Anyway, apparently Tina from Kentucky has a generous behind. <laughs> And she says, that was said very proper. She says, you can't hide those features. I, God knows I try. I'm having, I'm having a conversation about her large asses with someone that's not even here. This conversation is something that continues to happen today. You cannot be attractive and successful, and you can't be sexy and successful. This conversation mirrors one had in season one where Peggy or Joan tells Peggy that she should shorten her hemlines if she wants to be taken seriously, i.e. land a husband. Also earlier in the Severance episode, there's a reference to hemlines becoming shorter. Mm-hmm. In Severance, conversations surrounding clothes and even the visual evidence of women in short dresses allude to the loosening of a post-war culture, but also the air of liberation that many women began to feel. Remember, in the 60s and 70s, feminist folk movement focused on workplace inequality, but then broadened its goals. So while men of this generation focused on the hemlines, the women of this era were making waves. When Joan purchases clothes in the next scene, she speaks with the authority of a woman who has been wealthy her entire life. Ironically, the dress she wears is reminiscent of the red dress she wore during Season 1, Episode 6, hmm. Babylon, where Roger buys her a bird and she leaves under the cover of night from a hotel room. Now she has the power and wealth to purchase anything she wants. How Beyonce of her. When she tells the sales girl, you must have mistaken me for someone else, she is severing ties with her former identity. If we fold the song, is that all there is into Joan's storyline? This song reflects how most of the people or men in this show saw material wealth, the house in the suburbs and status as a primary goal in life. Men during this episode, or sorry, men during this time were expected to be of the marrying kind at early age, even before they knew who they were. Enter and exit Sal. Uh, eventually these men can become bored and, but they can't break away from their formal commitments. You give them your eye. Don't give them the rest of your life. The burden of obligations when all you want to do is fly and to be free for Joan and Peggy. This type of success wasn't part of their life plan. So there is no, or there is more room for them to be innovators and to live a life worth living. But also in saying, is this all there is? There's an air of cynicism that cryptically marks the golden era as a farce. And for those who are marginalized due to race, sexuality, and gender, perhaps living their dreams on their own terms was a better life in general. Okay. Lots of heady stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't disagree with any of it. <clears throat> yeah. it's I wasn't there, but it certainly sounds like the way that, uh, th- that I have the vision of that time built in my head. No, but kind of like, you know, everything old is new again, you know? I mean, it's kind of surreal. You know, you talk about... Sal and and you know what it was like for closeted men and obviously things are much better in that regard but you know we're from Indiana Indiana just fucking punched itself in the dick for an entire week and it was painful to watch across the border from Ohio mm-hmm. uh, as it did so I mean like me and Cecily were sitting on the couch watching Siren Live and a haymaker flew in from like some character said if I wanted to know what it's like to live in the 60s they're making fun of Mad Men it's like this pretend critic he said if i want to know what it's like to live in the 60s i'd move to indiana uh-huh. and we're like whoa like punch like but sure it's uh it is it is what it is man um the more the more the more things change the more things stay the same any other thoughts or should we move on nope i think we're good dan from manchester says i think the waitresses that are the waitress that Don recognizes is a representation of all the women that he has had meaningful affairs with over the years. She has a similar look to Rachel, uh, the artist girl, Midge, the school teacher whose name I can't recall. And obviously neither can Dan and Sylvia 
We see Don surrounded by beautiful young blonde women throughout the episode who he has meaningless flings with, and yet it's his waitress who attracts his attention. Could it be that the blonde women are symbolic of the young blonde prostitute who took his virginity, and the waitress is a symbolic of real connections he once had and missed opportunities? He does what he always does to these women and immediately ruins it with instant sexual gratification and even accidentally turns her into a prostitute like he did with Sylvia. This is Don's mistake in life laid out in front of us yet again and Rachel dying and his dream is him realizing once again that he must change before it's too late. Again, only six episodes left. (laughs) I was optimistic for Don at the end of 7A, but now that he's taken steps backwards, can he really change his ways in a six-episode arc? I completely dismissed Don dying until I watched this episode. Perhaps the show is going to be more pessimistic in its conclusion about people changing than the suggested optimism of season 7A. Yeah, I I do agree. I think she has the the same view of this woman as I do, roughly, is that it's it's bigger than just, you know, someone who Don vaguely recalls because he's attracted to that kind of person. All right. Do you agree with uh, Dan's thesis here that you're more? Sorry. Oh, I didn't even notice that Uh, gender bending going on here. Uh, (laughs) Shit. What was I saying? Oh, do you agree with his general thesis that you are more pessimistic about Don's positive life arc after this episode than you were after Bert tap dances way into Roger's office in the end of last season? Uh, Not really. I mean, as far as him dying by the end of this thing, no. Well, as far as him repeating his mistakes, I've always been on that on that train. I'm a little bit more pessimistic because I thought this was going to be a kind of healing season. And we're yeah. starting off with Don in the middle yeah. of his of his Donness. Doesn't mean it can't be, but it's not a good start to that, certainly. Sure. Uh, ben R. said the first lyric of the song ends with, is that all there is to a fire? Later on, Joan says, I want to burn this place to the ground. Mm. And the premiere of 7.1 Time Zones, Megan says, they can tell where the fire starts. Uh, talking about Don throwing a cigarette out into the canyon. How much more of a foreshadowing of a fire do we need? We're going <laughs> to get a literal fire in the show, Joan. Sure. I don't know what year... We didn't start the fire came out, but I'm predicting an end on that year. We're going to Billy Pig Pilgrim <laughs> and all Billy the, Joel all the way to <laughs> uh-huh. all in the finale. Um, <laughs> ben continues. This is the happiest we've ever seen Don, probably because it's the first time he has never had a foil in the workplace or an emotional entanglement at home. Hmm. Yes, Don still longs for greater meaning, but so does everyone. He's openly joking about his past, sleeping with whoever he wants, and nobody hates him for being a rogue cowboy yet. It's kind of this true. is a solid yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Nobody is he's got no one to feel guilty about, except for probably his children he's neglecting again. Well, of course. Uh he's got no cutler, he's got no Lou, he's got no even Pete. Like mm-hmm. Pete and him are not comp- competing at this point. He's kind of a uh, king of his own life. And still unhappy, still unsatisfied. Yeah. Uh, the theme of this episode is a life not lived. Don is haunted by a dream by Rachel Minkin, not necessarily as the one who got away, but more as the road not taken. Peggy laments not taking vacation during an advertising career, and Kenny reflects on not having pursued a more fulfilling career in writing. What does it mean that both Anna Draper and Rachel Minkin passed away from cancer? I don't know. Don had a cough a couple of seasons ago. <laughs> Um, if you want to go with that theory again, <laughs> Anna Draper, not the road not taken, but definitely someone who genuinely loved him, yeah, and accepted mm-hmm. 
and knew him in a time when no one else did. Mm-hmm. It could, there's could be some possible connection there. Although Cancer's yeah, a I bitch mean, and it fucking can strike anywhere at any time. Her, her daughter came back last half season. I mean, if this was really meant as one whole season, I could see that somehow playing in. Because mm, we might not have seen the last of her anyway. Yeah, potentially. Uh, when Trisha from TWA spills her wine on the carpet, it struck me as a reference to mystery dates as Don romances Trisha in the same spot he strangled Andrea in his dream. Oh, yeah. Ooh. I made a joke about that in the live watch that, like, you know, pay no attention to the corpse under the bed, <laughs> but totally missed the blood bloodstain wine reference. Do you uh-huh. think there's anything to that? Or is this... Yeah, there to- there definitely could be. I don't know what. I was thinking more about Megan at the time with the earring. Sure, but, sure. But yeah. I, the telltale earring. The telltale bloodstain. Anyway, that's all the email we got uh, for this week. You can okay. send us more at madmen at madmen at baldmove.com. You can also participate in our forums at forums.baldmove.com. Great way to keep up with our release schedule, which is uh, going to be vol- voluminous, 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 uh, is by going to facebook.com slash bald move and liking us or following us on face or on Twitter at bald move because everything we post on the site instantly gets echoed through those mediums. Sure does. And you can also comment on stuff there. Okay. Anything else we need to talk about, Jim? We I, got, I don't think so. This is going to be, uh, I'm looking forward to these next six episodes. Just to be clear, we don't have, I mean, we might come up with something later on, but we do not have any instant cast nor live watch scheduled for Mad Men in the foreseeable future. Um, you know, I think some people are confused by us posting a, a um, what do we post? Uh, uh, a Walking Dead recap yesterday because I got a lot of pe- people emailing us, so, you know, why didn't the Mad Men thing come out? Mad Men recaps always come out on Tuesday. Yeah. So. Nothing new there. There you go. I right. just got confused. Yeah, and we're we're doing Game of Thrones. I don't know how many of you are interested in that, but if you are, that's starting up next week again. Yep, we're wrapping up uh, Better Call Saul this week. Yep. Justify has got another week or two left to, to run on it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's about to be all Mad Men, all Game of Thrones all the time. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll catch you next Tuesday. Until then, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. See ya. <laughs> Thank you.